Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund and Restore the Mississippi River Delta. And my partner in crime, Simone Malaz, is not able to be with us today. She's out doing the important work, helping to restore Louisiana's coast. And I know she's missing this great episode, but we will have her back soon. I am really excited to be joined by someone you all likely well know, um, a very well-known uh, musician in Louisiana who kind of shares our culture and our music with the world. Um, so joining us today from the Lost Bayou Ramblers is Louis Michaud. He's a Grammy award-winning Cajun punk musician. When he's not touring with Arcade Fire or the Violent Femmes, he lives outside Arnonville, Louisiana on a stretch of land called Prairie de Femmes, where his wife and three children um, built their home with the salvage of an old Acadian cottages held together with a traditional Cajun construction technique called bousselage, a martyr of Spanish moss and mud. Um, the family speaks French at home, uh, a piece of Louis's life work to Cajun culture into the future. So really excited to have Louis on to talk about a whole range of topics, including an event that they're partnering with the Coalition of Restore Coast of Louisiana on um, and more. So Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Louis. It's such an honor to have you on. You and I met a while ago down in Violet, Louisiana at Dockville Farms for a cook-off for the coast um, before, you know, all the stuff happened and we were able to do live events and and, and music events. Um, and you were there kind of, again, supporting Louisiana's coast with, with your music and, and supporting that great event. So it's great to connect with you again. And from what I understand, you're actually, you know, speaking of getting back to doing things, um, you're you're on tour right now currently. So where are you joining us from? I'm lucky to be joining y'all from my house here in Arnaville. Uh, I did just get back. I can basically count the hours since I got back and I can count the hours till I leave again. We did uh, four shows last weekend, starting at Tipitina's up to Boston, uh, Philly and New York. And I'm leaving at 2 a.m. to go to Washington, D.C., down through uh, Carolina, Nashville, and Atlanta. So uh, very glad to be back at work uh, touring with uh, Lost by Ramblers and Pogatry, and uh, glad to be on, on Delta Dispatches. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time literally in, in between your busy, busy schedule. I have to ask, I mean, obviously, you know, people at Tipitina's must like love the music and love having that experience of being back out, seeing live music in New Orleans again. I mean, is there a similar energy when you're in Boston and other places? I imagine you get a, a mix of maybe folks who are from Louisiana who live up there, but also folks who love our music and our culture. So what is it like touring again right now? Tell you what, people are really ready to get out, you know, and as, <laughs> as much as it's, you know, it's been so much stop and go and cautiousness and safety and all that. These last shows have been ragers and it's been something I did not expect that I would see so soon. And, you know, even for us, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's tricky, tricky trying to navigate what venues you want to play or what you don't want to play. And these have been basically our first run of indoor shows and there's been over 500 people at each show <laughs> like some of them right up against the stage and it's like all right here we are so uh you know it's uh we we're we're taking a lot of precaution to keep ourselves safe 
partially because that's what we want to do and partially so we can continue the tour, you know, and because and, and, it's definitely been a struggle, um, you know, financially as musicians and such. It's just been a lot of a lot of ups and downs the last two years and coming out. It's funny because we actually were in the middle of this same tour two years ago, right when COVID hit. So we our last show was March 9th of 2020 in New York. And we just finished our last show in New York on Sunday. And it was like complete full circle. So it's really great to be out there being able to play music. People have been so ready. They've been just just going crazy. And it's uh, it's beautiful to see. Well, that, that is wonderful. And I'm so happy for you and also all the fans who are able to get out and celebrate and enjoy your music. And you're certainly right that that is, you know, musicians are, you know, a, a subset of, of folks that were really greatly impacted by this um, pandemic in the last two years and the inability for them to get out and share their art and with the with the world and, and their fans and kind of have these live events. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of attention, particularly in New Orleans and elsewhere about the impact to musicians. And so glad that folks are able to get back out safely, um, perform, share their work, share their art and, and celebrate. So where can folks go to learn more about the tour, maybe buy tickets and see you all in person and be a part of this experience? Well, uh, we have all of our shows sched- uh, listed up at lostbyuramblers.com. So that's a great central location. Uh, and once we get back from this tour, uh, the end of this weekend, and we'll be right on to the celebration uh, for the CRCL. So really, really glad to be able to be bringing it home and, uh, you know, continuing with such a great cause. And their tickets, tickets to the celebration are also available at uh, lostbyramblers.com as well. The link, the link to the tickets. That's awesome. And, and- it, yeah, just so folks know, um, so you will be back in New Orleans um, at Crescent Park on March 25th from 6 to 9 p.m. for the celebration, which is being put on by the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. That's to support the coalition's oyster shell recycling program. So it'll be a great evening, wonderful music by Louie and the Lost Bayou Ramblers. It'll also include fresh oysters and other food local brews and drinks, a silent auction, and more. So that'll be a wonderful evening, and you'll get to see and hear the Lost Bayou Ramblers live at Crescent Park, which is a beautiful uh, setting. So go to the Lost Bayou Ramblers website to get tickets. You can also go to crcl.org slash shell-a-bration. So, Louis, I want to get into your background a little bit. I mean, as I mentioned, you've been an amazing advocate for Louisiana's coast and communities and really an ambassador for our culture and and really what's worth saving in terms of the work we're doing um, through coastal restoration and a number of other efforts. So tell us a little bit, for those who may not be familiar about your background, where did you grow up in Louisiana and how did you get your start in music? Well, um, my my brother Andre and I, who started Lost Bayou Ramblers, uh, we we both grew up in basically in Broussard, Lafayette, and uh, our father Tommy Michaud was part of Le, is still part of Le Frat Show, a band of all brothers, five brothers at a time because they came from a family of ten, and so we grew up with that around. Uh, at the same time, our father Tommy is uh, now a retired biologist, and he was always doing a lot of the science work, you know, that has helped to uh to determine where where the needs are on coastal restoration on a lot of it was uh geared towards bird migration 
and uh, like marsh grass, uh, marsh grass habitat and the levels, salinity levels, maybe taking samples and core samples on it. So we grew up with him constantly studying this on a first, you know, firsthand basis. And he actually was a, 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 a seaplane pilot at the same time. So he would fly a seaplane and would go and do do these samples and do all this amazing science work uh, firsthand. And he would actually bring his accordion with him. So some, you know, he'd, he'd be down at Cocodri or, you know, out the Chandler Islands and have his accordion. He'd, he'd actually went as far as, I think, Guatemala one time where they did a kind of Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean uh, science samples. And like he would jam with people the whole time. So it's kind of been, he's really who, you know, handed us both the music and the love and appreciation and awareness of the Louisiana's coast. I mean, he didn't drill it into us like, oh, you got to really care about the coast. It just kind of came naturally. It wasn't, he never really talked about it like, oh, the coast is being degraded so fast. It was just what he did. And, you know, in, in becoming more aware and connected to our own culture and roots, it became apparent that, you know, we are connected to this land and this land is in dire need of of this of the same human help that uh is has a hand in its destruction in a sense so it's been kind of always part of the same coin in that way you know yeah that's i mean that's fascinating and add, to have that kind of intersection of art and um ecology you know music and and um the environment from a young upbringing must have been so uh you know informative and, and simone and i on the show try to talk about those connections and how you know our coast of course there are a lot of really brilliant scientists and engineers that are working on solutions to restore and protect coastal louisiana but you know the coast intersects with people and their lives in so many different ways and so um to hear that kind of influence from your father is certainly interesting and i have to point out simone likes to bring up that i, I always find a way to talk about birds on the show. I'm going to say that you brought that up proactively talking about your father, but really great way to think about, you know, the the changes in the coast is to study, you know, bird migrations and, and how those change and differ over time. So very interesting. This is a question she likes to ask, so I'm going to channel her, but um, did little Louie always want to be a musician and band leader touring the country, winning Grammys, et cetera? Was that always the path that you set yourself on? Uh, that, that's that's kind of hard to answer. It's, you know, I think I, I did get to a point in my late teenage years where I realized that I loved music so much that that was all I wanted to do. But then again, a few years after that, I wanted to become a farmer. I wanted to become like you know an organic farmer. I studied permaculture and these these kind of uh, you know these kind of ways to try to connect myself more to my own life cycle, if you will, of trying to grow food and such. And for a while, I wanted to be a farmer and I didn't want to be a musician. But even at the same time, I'm not a great farmer. And as anyone knows, being a, a farmer, like an organic farmer, any, any farmer is a lot, is hard, hard work. Not that me being a musician is not, but being a musician came natural to me. And so even while I was like studying permaculture and studying different, uh, different, you know, types of, of, farming techniques and botany and trying to take classes, I ended up just playing music. Like I went to New York to take some classes. I went to New York to do some permaculture. I ended up doing some permaculture classes here in Louisiana and got certified by Jeff Lawton, who learned directly from Bill Mollison and like 
really was lucky to be able to have that exposure. But at the same time, I would still just go out on the streets and play my music to make money. And that's really where it turned into my career, if you will, was mostly by playing on the streets. I played on the streets all through Eastern Canada and across the West Coast and then my travels in the East Coast and New York a lot, New Orleans a lot back in the day. Some people might remember me playing on Decatur Street next to Central Grocery. And, uh, you know, it's been that is really what uh, really what led to playing more gigs and led to our first tours in New York. And I eventually was able to bring up the whole band and we would play on the streets. We'd get these little gigs and then we'd play on the streets and then festival promoters would see us playing on the streets and then they would hire us for their festival. And we ended up being the longest running band to be playing the chili pepper festival in Brooklyn. And uh, you know, it's just, it really came organically. So it's not something that I really sought out. It's just something that we've continued to doing what we love and are appreciative to be able to have been able to make a living and support our families doing what we love. That's awesome. So the music came organically, the organic, organic farming was a little bit more of a challenge, but I, I'm sure you're still able to do some of that farming as well yeah. while you're keeping up with your music. And you guys have been around for over 20 years. That That's a quite an impressive run. I mean, um, you know, are you, when you reflect back to those early days, I mean, is it, are you just like in awe of kind of all that's happened since then? Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. Definitely. It's, uh, I mean, just this last weekend, you know, being on stage with Spider Stacy and, and Rocky Reardon, who are both original members of the Pogues, and all that they've been through and, and being able to share that whole repertoire with them, I just was looking back like, wow, how did we end up here? You know, <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it's it's an amazing, amazing journey that we're very grateful for, for sure. And uh, and there's been a lot of, a lot of amazing moments, a lot of, uh, a lot of hard work, you know, even just this last weekend, I mean, People don't realize the hours that go into touring. My gosh, it was just, you don't, you don't barely have time to think. Like I brought a book. I didn't read one word because it was just, you know, go, go, go. The only time you have time is between the sound check and the performance. And if that, if you have time to eat and then relax a little bit, but, uh, you know, that being said between, between, uh, tours and between weekends of gigging and stuff, I do like to, I do like to try to grow as much as I can. I have some arugula and radishes and growing. I have fruit trees and all that. So yeah, it's become kind of the opposite of what I thought at one moment in my life where I'm not trying to make any money growing food. I'm just trying to do it for myself. But <laughs> but uh, music, you know, it definitely is. Yeah, yeah. To see how far we've come. Yeah, I, I agree. I like gardening and farming. I planted, I know, a satsuma tree that did really well and some other trees. And, you know, but I don't know if I could do it to support myself. But yeah, as a hobby every now and then, I think it's fun. Um, so let me ask you, I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, folks may know, uh, we actually used to use one of the songs from the soundtrack as our intro music on Delta Dispatches. But you were all were involved with the film The Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is just incredibly beautifully done, powerful film. Um, and you all did the song, The Bathtub, that was on the soundtrack. So what was it like being a part of that film, you know, that reached so many people around the world about Louisiana's culture and our coast and environment and all these issues? Yeah, it's amazing to look back at Beast of Southern Wild 10 years ago. Now, it was, you know, it just came out, it came out 10 years ago this year. And 
at, at what at the what at the time seemed to be such a fictitious story, which it is. Upon looking back in Hurricane Ida, at one moment I texted Ben Zeitlin, <laughs> you know, who made Beasts of the Wild, said, "Looks like your movie came true." And he said, "It's he said it's." It's way too scarily true, and it's way too scarily on point with the movie. I mean, really, it's like the same areas, a lot of the same exact situations. Of course, it's much more dramatized and with a storyline, which unfortunately there's not much of a storyline in a disaster like that, uh, you know, just survival mode. But um, it did bring a lot of awareness, you know, to these extremities of southern Louisiana. A lot of people don't even realize they're there. And I think a lot of people looked at the movie at the time and thought, oh, this isn't how things are. And then when, you know, and I've, I'd spent a fair amount of time in these areas, Montague and Plano Shan and all this. But when we went and started doing some hurricane relief work after Hurricane Ida, it was all too familiar with the, with the, uh, with the Beast of Southern Wild. And it was actually a bit freaky, uh, <laughs> you know, and because uh, it's such, such, that's the, the thing about Louisiana. There's so much beauty and so much tragedy all wrapped up in one. And the people are so amazing and, and at the same time have to work so hard to keep their heads above water, literally, you know? So it's uh, interesting to look back 10 years after that film, but it was amazing to be part of the film and the music. They did such an amazing job of marrying the traditional music with that score feel and uh, it was an honor to be a part of yeah well if folks haven't watched it or haven't listened to the score um highly recommend doing both i I remember i'll never forget i was living in california outside of san francisco at the time and i saw the film in a theater with a bunch of people from california and you know having grown up in plaquemines parish i was like oh my god i didn't i didn't know what to expect going into it and just it felt so deeply personal in so many ways you know about the life in, in coastal Louisiana and the communities. And of course, like you said, it's in the kind of extreme, um, in a way it was fictitious. Um, but, but yeah, just incredibly powerful. And I think it's been 10 years. And, and to your point about, you know, that's something that communities have experienced in a, in a way, um, through recent events. Um, but at the same time, it is this powerful portrayal of people living on the edge of the Gulf of Mexico and who are refusing to compromise on their culture and their way of life, despite any of these environmental challenges. So, um, really powerful. And it's hard to believe it's been 10 years since it came out. But I do want to ask, since you mentioned Ida, of course, you know, um, I can't believe we're what, like seven, eight months after the storm. And of course, there's still so much need from communities across Louisiana's coast that were impacted by Ida, not to mention the storms in 2020 that impacted certainly Southwest Louisiana and other parts. So, you know, what message, I mean, you're you're out there, you're you're reaching audiences around the country, around the world. You know, what message would you send to people about the pe- communities in Louisiana and what they need and kind of uh, how we can better help and support them in the future and the aftermath of these devastating events like Hurricane Ida? Yeah, it's a, it's really it's a huge question, because as we know, you know, South Louisiana is so vulnerable to climate change and it's it's getting the first taste of, you know, climate extremities and i think it's i think it really is unfortunately a good lesson to show people what is possible and what is a reality uh 
you know, as a result of of climate change and intensification that, you know, not only is the water rising, but the storms are intensifying and the mixture of the two is, isn't pretty. And, um, you know, I think it's part of the wake up call that we all have to be a part of to do whatever we can, you know, um, relocation is not a fun idea for anyone, you know, and I don't advocate for it. I mean, I know as long as there's land to stand on that we will stand on that the people in those Southern extremities will stand on it and will keep going. And people talk about, oh, why would you ever want to live there? And it's, they don't understand the magic beauty that exists down there. And like, every time I go down there, it's, it's like, even despite the conditions, it's almost like you want to stay, you know, and it's beautiful and the people are beautiful and they have such a surviving spirit and a welcoming spirit that you almost don't encounter anywhere else. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of places in the world that have just as beautiful uh, of communities and such, but for me and my experience, it is, you know, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth and it's really sad to see it go through so much, so much hardship. But, uh, you know, I think we just got to take things one day at a time and really try to make the best with every decision. Yeah. I mean, I think that was really well said and very powerfully said, um, you know, and I think of course, uh, in our work and the work that, you know, Simone and our partners do, I mean, you know, we see it as a, even more of an urgent call to action, right. To kind of restore and protect whatever we can, um, of our coastal wetlands to kind of provide that buffer to the greatest extent from, from the Gulf of Mexico, from more intense storms. Um, and I know you've been an advocate for, for a while. It sounds like going back to your childhood with your father of coastal restoration. And so, I mean, why, why do you foresee that being just such a, a, an urgent issue now um, more than ever? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that it's not going to get any better unless we use these technologies that we've <laughs> developed you know, the same technologies that have created so much harm and created so much change, I say, we can use these technologies if we could just focus our energy, our resources on protection. I feel like we could easily, we could easily create a much better future for ourselves, you know, for our future generations. Uh, I was fortunate CR, uh, CRCL sent me on a my wife and I on a airplane tour of these of the Barataria area in this uh, lower Mississippi and all the the restoration projects that are in place in uh, in July and we got to see you know what the coast was looking like from a, from the bird's eye view and what the projects successes were how much land they've been rebuilding and we got to see it and we got to go to Grand Isle for a few days all in July. It just so happened before, you know, just like just a month and two months before Hurricane Ida hit. So I know that it must have changed it so much. But I feel like if we can use our resources and use our technologies that we could really, really create a much more stable future for our coast. And, uh, you know, it's a complex, a very complex ecosystem, obviously. There's no easy answer, but there's a lot that we can do, and it's great to see it being done, especially that the work that CRCL is doing is amazing with 
you know, rebuilding reefs and, you know, really promoting diet, po positive diversions and protective barriers and such is so much that needs to be done. And uh, we need to focus as much resources as we can for our, for our own, for our own longevity as a state, as a nation, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you and your wife had that um, opportunity to go up on a flyover. I mean, we like to have people go up there as much as possible because to your point, I mean, that bird's eye view, there's no better uh, vantage point from which to understand what's happened to the coast, but also the potential, right? And so you certainly do see a lot of areas that have lost land. And like one of our scientists likes to call the wetlands look like Swiss cheese in a way where you kind of have, have holes uh, coming from the inside, but you also see opportunities in areas that are rebuilding land and regaining wetlands and have been restored. And and so um, it is a really powerful perspective. And and I agree with you, Coalition Restore Coastal Louisiana has done amazing work through their oyster shell recycling program. I know they've deployed um, some oyster reefs, several oyster reefs around the state, um, you know, using oyster shells that came from restaurants in New Orleans and elsewhere. Um, that would have otherwise gone to a landfill. And, and I know, you know, from some of the scientists working at Coalition North Shore Coastal Louisiana that they said, hey, those uh, oyster reefs actually held up pretty well during Ida, which is great news, um, you know, a small bit of good news. So yeah, um, I wanted to ask as well, I mean, in the aftermath of Ida, you were also a really vocal um, proponent of solar power and you've been working to increase access um, so that more people across the state can can leverage solar power. Why is that such an important issue for you, or why do you see it being an important issue for our state? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, on on the same tip. My my grandpa was an architect. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, and he was always trying to implement solar in his projects. And he just said the technology wasn't there, and the funding wasn't there, and the the support wasn't there really and you know i know i know it's it's a time in which we live in it's a market economy and it's a capitalist culture and it has to make sense financially and it's you know using solar is not cheap it should be though you know it shouldn't be it shouldn't be so expensive i mean we've invested so much into the infrastructure we have that it doesn't make sense to some people to invest in a new infrastructure. But, you know, for one, the energy independence that solar can provide to families, to communities is so important. As we've seen through Hurricane Ida, people are left without power, which left them in the hottest, absolute hottest part of the year with no air conditioning and with no way to keep cool, which exacerbated people's people's health problems you know that could be avoided um pollution and the detrimental effects on the environmental climate change is obviously another one um you know it just it seems like such a no-brainer but it is something that that really takes community outreach at this point and education and i think one of the main things is that we should be focusing on how many jobs that it could create and it already has created a lot of jobs here in louisiana and in the nation and you know training people doing installations doing maintenance it's there's a lot of a lot of knowledge goes into it and this should be something that 
should be standardized really it should be part of, and it, and it will be it will be part of our of our future and our reality it's just a it's just a matter of it's it's hard to grow and it's hard to change and that's what we face as a society so after hurricane ida you know we decided to do a little as much as we could in a little bit to try to put together some solar um some small solar systems with battery backup for some of the residents who had lost their houses down in Pointershan and um, connecting with the Footprint Project, who is focused on disaster recovery using sustainable energy. And a company they work with called New Use Energy out of uh, Bellingham, Washington, who makes their own solar generators, which is basically like a battery with an inverter. It's like a, it's like a gas generator, but instead of charging it with gas, you charge it with solar power or or just electricity. It could be a portable battery bank if you need. So we've installed a few of these with their own solar panels to be recharged. And, you know, it allows these people to have some, ener some, some energy independence. And, hey, should another hurricane or any disaster of any kind come, they can actually have a portable solution to bring with them. For one, what if you are in the risk of getting, de getting destroyed? Uh, and you know of losing of losing your habitat so to say you can actually bring these small solar generators with you and they're big enough to power a window unit you know if you're if you feel you're in danger you can like that's the one thing about if you're going to spend all this money and put a whole solar system and batteries and stuff on your house that's stationary what if your house is in danger of not surviving storm then it's a more risky idea so you know not only is it not only is it risky financially, it's also we have to try to find ways of, of, of using appropriate technology and appropriate renewable energy that uh, works for people's budgets and their lifestyles. And just since we've started using them, I have friends that want to use them on their food trucks and people that want to use them on their boats, you know, like, oh, I don't have to have a generator. I can bring this battery pack and I can power my stuff for an entire day or multiple days depending on how much I use. So there's really a lot of great options out there it's just um you know it's just educating people about it and so we tried to do as much as we could just to to kind of give it a boost and you know especially while people were listening because as as we know right now like the war in ukraine going on um it's got everyone's attention and at the same time these same companies footprint project and new use energy who the founder of New Use Energy is actually of Ukrainian descent. When I first met him, he was speaking Ukraine. He came and met us in Montague, and he was speaking Ukrainian on the phone with his uh, with his wife. And he they have been sending as much resources as they can to Poland and to Ukraine uh, to help these people in the in the same thing. So it's not just environmental disaster. You know, it's his worst case scenario. And this technology is useful all around. So, I mean, it's really something that I know will become more popular over time and more mainstream, more accepted. But it, you know, it really has to be part of the equation in creating a more sustainable future, especially here in Louisiana. Certainly. And, you know, I think if anything, Hurricane Ida showed us how, you know, these hurricanes, these storms, these climate disasters, whatever you want to call them, I mean, they're not just you know, natural disasters. I mean, they affect every aspect of people's lives and communities. 
And, you know, one of the things we focus on a lot is that our coast and our climate are changing and, and we have to find ways to kind of change and innovate um, to, to protect our way of life into the future. So really great to hear that. Louis, I, I also wanted to ask, I mean, you were involved in the founding of the Cultural Research Institute of Acadiana. Tell us a little bit about that organization and, and why you were in, got involved with it. Yeah, Cultural Research Institute of Acadiana was founded in uh, 2007 to try to give a place to save another element of you know of importance in louisiana which is seed stock and genetics um you know promoting heirloom seeds and seeds that had been in families for a long time because as we know this is a, a an issue around the world that the diversity of you know of especially like uh edible plants and such and farmed plants has been shrinking uh at a, at a at a crazy rate, and we wanted to do what we could to try to provide a, a space for that here in Louisiana. Uh, it's a it's a very it's a very tricky tricky situation because you can get the seeds, but then you have to grow them out and keep them going. And what we found is that the people that have kept them going, they learn the knowledge with it. So we've been trying to get the knowledge and the seeds together, and uh, we've been really trying to it's been it's been a, a very tricky path forward with uh with seed saving as you know it like Docville farm has been doing some of that as well and uh you know it really it comes down to trying to partner with people who are good at growing things and who have space for growing things and let, letting that happen organically as well so uh you know we have so many beautiful varieties of of things like i mean for instance the creole tomato they say doesn't exist anymore you know there's 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 things that we can still hold on to and a lot of the knowledge including the language and such so it's a it's a really big mission but it's one that uh you know that that can can keep on growing with the people and that's uh we ended up using that to do some of the solar fundraising as well through CREA. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone who helped out with that. And we've been, we still have a few more solar uh, arrays to distribute. They even make a, and this is great for people down the bayou, especially, they make a solar powered deep freezer. So it's a deep freezer that is specifically wired and constructed to be run super efficiently and can be, and it has its own battery and can be powered by one or two solar panels. So imagine that after a hurricane when the power's out forever and everyone loses all their food. If you had a deep freezer, that would could be stay on. You could keep your essentials, your food, the 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 fish and the produce you've worked so hard to, you know, catch and harvest, keep it frozen, and that could keep you going for that many more days and weeks. So that's one more thing Korea has been involved in. That's incredible. And, you know, I, I know uh, so many people like in Louisiana, that's just a part of our, our culture and life, right? We have that deep freezer that we stock up with, you know, the shrimp, the fish, the meat, everything that has been harvested over the last few months. And, and you know, my grandparents had had that, you know, their their freezer in their uh, garage with with all that. And, and then they lost exactly. it in Katrina. And it's a it's a huge loss in that moment. But then to your point, like, I mean, hey, that's something that can sustain people for weeks, months, you know, in the aftermath of these disasters. So really great to see that innovation take shape. Um, Louis, I, I thank you so much for your time today. I know you're incredibly busy and, and you know, the fact that you're willing to come on and share your perspective with us and also um, 
support the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana and perform at Celebration in the midst of a busy tour. I know, I know they really appreciate. So I just one more time want to let folks know you can see Bluey and the Lost Bayou Ramblers live at Celebration on March 25th at Crescent Park in New Orleans. That's from 6 to 9 p.m. In addition to amazing music from the Lost Bayou Ramblers, they'll have fresh oysters and other food, local brews, drinks, a silent auction, and more. It'll be a great evening. Go to on to crcl.org slash shell dash a dash Bration. That's B-R-A-T-I-O-N to get your tickets for this night. Um, it will be one that will certainly be one to remember. Louis, before I let you go, I have to ask our fun question, which is a tradition here on Delta Dispatches. So, um, you know, I guess we'll stick with the theme of the show. Um, if you could perform with any musician, past or present, um, who would that be? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I honestly, and I know this might be a little bit too expected, but I love to imagine being alive a hundred years ago when some of the icons of Cajun French music were playing Amade Ardouin and Amade Bro. And, uh, you know, one was of African descent and one was of Acadian descent. And they were both phenomenal accordion players and they both lived within like 30 miles of each other. And they both played such a diversity of styles within cage music, anywhere from like blues to you'd almost hear jazz come through it sometimes, which sounds crazy, but it's true. And, uh, you know, and then the old mazurkas and the two steps and the waltzes and these old dances and like, just to be, just to have been able to, witness and be part of their genius and their magic would be a, would be a dream of mine. Well, that's a great answer. Sounds like you thought about that one a little bit. Um, and you know, that would be an incredible concert, um, and performance, no doubt. So thank you again, Louis, so much for being on. I wish you the best of luck with the rest of your tour and everything else. And, and thank you again for being an advocate for Louisiana's coast and communities and so many aspects of your, your work really appreciate it. Um, so now it's time for the Coastal Stat of the Week, um, and this is about our guest. It's for the past 20 years, Louis has led the band Lost Bayou Ramblers with his brother Andre. Louis plays fiddle, Andre plays accordion. He also runs a label, Nouveau Electric Records, putting out music in Louisiana French that seeks to bridge the gap between tradition and evolution by introducing new creative visions to the centuries-old instrumentation and expressive vocabularies of the region. And um, this week's Coastal Voice of the Week is also from Louis. It's from um, an interview uh, that was done with Louis and Tulane professor Andy Horowitz um, in, for Rolling Stone. And in it, um, Louis says that when you're going down the bayou, Golden Meadow is the last stop before the Gulf of Mexico at Grand Isle. I was in Grand Isle in July and I saw these beautiful birds, magnificent, magnificent frigate birds, the only vi- they only visit the barrier islands, but then the day after the hurricane, I saw one at my house in Prairie de Femme, and I'm 150 miles from Grand Isle. It made me think of climate migration and what might be next for the people in Golden Meadow and at the bottom of Lapouche Parish. Um, and Louis was talking about the inspiration for his song, Aloha Golden Meadow. So definitely check out that interview um, in Rolling Stone with, with Louis and Andy Horowitz. And thank you again, Louis, for being on. You're always welcome to come back on Delta Dispatches. Thanks for having me, Jacques, and we're really looking forward to the celebration on March 25th. Y'all, please come out and support their amazing work, and we hope to see y'all there and have some good oysters.
Yeah, absolutely. Celebration, March 25th, 6 to 9 in Crescent Park in New Orleans. You'll get to hear Lost Bayou Ramblers, have delicious food, drinks, and more. So definitely get your tickets. Um, and thanks again to Louie and thanks again to Coalition Restore Coast of Louisiana for their work and this great event that's upcoming. Um, thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with more great coastal content on Dis- Delta Dispatches. Until then, we will see y'all later, alligators.